All right. Hey, you, and welcome back to another episode of the That Chapter Podcast. It's Mike, and I'm joined once again by uh, Dirty Keith over here. Hey, <laughs> the boys. What's going on? What's going on with you? I'm working, man. Uh, yeah, working away. Fuge, you know, mm-hmm. that old grind. We talk about spooky things on that chapter. Any spooky things happen? So I'm looking forward to doing this story. It's a good one. And it had me thinking about. Um, similar instances in my life, I guess. Similar instances to what Bob Burdell did? Well, not the exact same. Yeah, <laughs> okay, fuck it up. But, but I was thinking about, like, uh, while we're on the topic of, like, serial killers and stuff, I think when I was younger, I may have come across a, a potential serial killer. Potential serial? What? Do tell. So we were... Actually, I don't know why you weren't there. Mm-hmm. We were about, like, seven or eight. And it was me and uh, the two lads we hung out with. Right. Yeah, and for people who know, like me and Keith grew up literally next door neighbours yeah. for our entire lives. Yeah, we've known each other since. Yeah, we all hung yeah. out with the same friends. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know why you weren't there on a okay. particular day, uh, but we went out to uh, Malhide Castle. Malhide Castle, yeah, in Dublin, yeah. And we went, uh, usually like we kind of started off in the playground and yeah. go crack have a bit of fun and we decided to explore the woods a little bit around Malai Castle which is yeah. always good fun yeah. and we were kind of walking around doing our thing and then there was we were really in the middle of nowhere at this point this other little kid came up he's about the same age as us or maybe a year or two older Okay. and he was just acting a bit odd he kind of came up and just like was talking to us a little bit but just got this vibe off him that you know something strange about this kid okay. you know he said, it was like, do you want to, I want, I want to show you something really cool. Okay. And we're like, all right. And then we kind of start walking a little bit with him. Like he, he wanted to show you some cool deeper into the forest? Well, he said, I want to show you something really cool. And we're like, okay. So then he kind of turned and he started walking. And we were kind of following him. I thought it was just there. Yeah. And then he was still walking. I was like, hang on. Like, where is this thing? He's like, ah, it's just over the, it's just over over there, you know. Like, come with me. It's cool. Like, just like chill like follow me and then we all were like looked at each other and we're like no (laughs) dude it's like "Uh, I think we gotta go man I think you know like his mom's gonna be wondering where we are I think we're gonna go and he's like you're not leaving and we're like no I think we're gonna and at that point we're like we're backing up and then he went after uh, the smallest of our group he grabbed them and threw them on the ground and started dragging them by his foot. What the to where fuck? He was we were like, fuck. So we'd, we'd jump off, we were like punching to get him off and stuff like, and eventually we got hit, like he wasn't letting go of the leg. What he was pulling, fuck? even though we were at him. Yeah. And he wouldn't let go of the leg. Eventually we got him off and kind of kicked him back and he fell back and then we are like legged it and yeah. he chased us the whole way back. What the fuck? Chased us all the way back to the path and wow. eventually we caught up with our friend's mom and we were like told the whole, told the whole story and yeah. yeah, as we were walking back to the car, he was like in the forest because it's, it's a trail back to the car yeah. and he was off in the forest maybe like 10 meters into the forest we could see him and he followed us the whole way back what just looking. Fuck? Really, really fucking weird. Like that's, that's, what, I, that's what I'm saying. I think it's like like, might have been, like, if he's not a serial killer now. I don't know. That ballsy take on, like, three guys. Yeah, exactly. And try and drag one away. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I wonder who this kid was. Yeah. And he grew up to be... You! You know, as somebody who talks about serial killers all the time, I've never encountered any weird shit like that. That's probably the best. No drama. Yeah, exactly. Not yet. And uh, what about your ghost, your haunted house? Uh, hopefully, I will have posted the video or a link to the video that you're going to send me. Yep, still, uh, still, still a haunted. Haunted. Well, I don't know. You know, there's there's a couple of still little strange. We'll have to do a live there. episode from your haunted house We should do it in the attic. The attic, the attic's fucking Yeah, we'll do a ghost hunter yeah. episode. I'm trying to avoid the attic. The attic's weird. Really? Yeah, it's just, it just has a vibe. You know? Do you ever hear any like? 
Yeah, but like the house is built like the 1930s. All right, so kind of like, everything makes noise. Everything makes noise. You know, everywhere mm-hmm. you move, noise has happened all the time. And yeah, it's it's weird. But there was one. I was in um, I was in my daughter's room and there was like handprints or there was a handprint on the window. And I was like, assume that's probably my daughter. You know, she's hands everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I went over and I was like, went to clean it. And the handprint was on the outside of the window. Whoa, that's cool. Isn't it? Yeah. It's usually on the second floor. It could have been a bird that flew into it. But it looked well, like, I mean, it looked like a bit of a hand. Yeah, you know? it, it wasn't a full handprint, but it looked like a bit of a hand. But your daughter's three years old then? True, yeah. So was it like a big hand? Like, was it, like, I mean, her hand is quite small. Well, it was, it was only a portion. Like, I say it was... It was more like, you know, like a, like a palm oh, print, okay. you know, so I, right. I, I, I could kind of see what looked like um, the lines and stuff, so it kind of oh, looked like, that's it, it might have been a bird, take it could have been a bird, but start, you, okay, start I, tried, pictures I tried to take a picture of the Yosemite, because like, oh. this is where it's really hard to get a, a picture of, like, no, yeah, you, you can't you know, focus. It just looked like I was taking a picture of a tree outside. Okay, when more creepy shit in your house starts uh, happening. Well, I hope it doesn't. Well, I can't <laughs> hope it is, though, because it's fun. <laughs> so it sucks for you, but it's fun. To, yeah, it's good content. Um, start documenting it. Okay, like okay. if the moth incident happens again. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was, well, I really, really hope that doesn't happen again. Like, well, yeah. I can do without stuff dying in my mouth in the yeah. middle of the night. Well, though, again, it's good, sir. So, you know, come on, you got to suck it up. Um, do for the pod. Yeah, exactly. Do for the pod. <laughs> Today is the story of Bob Berdella of Blood, who... Okay, folks, you know, we've talked about a lot of killers in videos and on podcasts. This guy is... It's very rare I read the story of somebody and, like, looking into the story of somebody who actually... This fucking turns my stomach. Like, this is probably one of the sickest shit. It's bad. I've I've ever come across. I've had to stop a couple of times while I'm reading it. Yeah, this is really a gruesome one. He He would do often, actually, what I'm planning on doing to you tonight kidnap boys and just spank their booties all night long and have a lot of fun with them. Well, I'm going to Did I say that out loud? <laughs> like, it's such a heavy case. Yeah. Like, it's just the, it's the level of violence, just sheer brutality in Depravity, the killing. Yeah. yeah disturbingness. Really, for me, it's like launched this guy to the top of my most despised people list. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying a lot because I've had the same person occupying that top spot for a very long time, which is Grandpa Joe from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Jumping crocodiles, Charlie. We've got a lot to do. Fucker, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a real piece of shit. Him on his fucking coke now. Oh, no, I can't move. Yeah. Have a ticket. Hey, let's go. <laughs> Maybe keep him at the top. You know, don't be too hasty with knocking him off the top of your list. So this old story, it all began on Easter weekend, the 2nd of April, 1988, when police got a 911 call that at first, they weren't sure whether or not to take seriously. A man working as a meter reader in the old Hyde Park area of Kansas City called in and told the operator that he had just seen a naked man jump out of a window of a house across the street. He even provided the dispatcher with the exact address at 4315 Charlotte Street. Luckily for them, and many others, they decided it was easy enough to have a patrol car go over and have a goo. Now, this sounds kind of oddly familiar, because if you're familiar at all with the story of Jeffrey Dahmer, and it's hard not to be. Something eerily similar happened with him, an escaping naked man from a serial killer's house. This story, it really is, I found, like, through reading it, it's very much a fusion between Jeffrey Dahmer and John Wayne Gacy. Mm. Really kind of blending the most chilling aspects of both into, like, a twisted, sadistic concoction. It's like they took all the ingredients for, like, horror and stirred it up together into, like, serving like a, a disturbing stew with yeah. a slice of like fucked up bread on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so just 
for the folks listening, like I would definitely put like a content warning or like viewer discretion advised on this episode. Yeah, yeah. For sure. According to those who knew him best, as well as the man himself, Robert, known as Bob Berdella, was pretty much the definition of a weirdo. What could easily have come across as him being simply a bit of an eccentric, in fact, masked a very dangerous man, much like myself. Exactly like mm-hmm. yourself. Shrive was alert here with your whimsical charm. Exactly. Only a few weeks ago to record some podcast stuff, and I'm still here. I'm not allowed Hashtag pray for Keith. Born on January 31st, 1949, the man who'd eventually become known as the Kansas City Butcher. Actually, he grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, in a small suburb called Cuyahoga Falls, to be exact. It's about as small as a small Midwestern town can be. And that's what drew Robert Berdella away from the town of his birth. In 1967, Robert Berdella moved to the city, Kansas City, where he would eventually make his name as one of the most messed up serial killers of his era. Before he made his murderous adventures a thing of habit, back in Cleveland, Berdella was known as a bit of a quiet loner kid, but not especially uh, cruel or aggressive. Typical of a lot of families throughout the American Midwest, Robert had a rather strict, conservative religious upbringing. He really did like embody just the quintessential image of a misfit, like mm. complete with trademark thick prescription glasses, yeah, speech yeah. impediment. It was it was a real nerd, you know? Yeah. His teachers even described like they didn't they didn't like they thought it was a bit of a pain in the ass and it's believed that his best friend was his mom. Oh, you know, like, could be sweet if he didn't go on to kill, like, six people. I mean, yeah, when you look at pictures of him, he's just got, yeah, the pretty big thick glasses, the big old mustache. He's, like, a bit heavy guy. He kind of just looks unremarkable in every way and kind of annoying. I think it's that mustache. He doesn't have the cool thick mustache. He looks, he looks like what he sounds like, I guess, is the way I would, I would describe him. Me being the neighbor next door, reached a point in his life where he could do monstrous acts. Young Robert had a very difficult relationship with his father. As the oldest of two boys, Robert was subjected to relentless teasing from his father, teasing that spiraled into outright emotional and physical abuse. Robert Berdelia Sr. put an undue value on his youngest son's athletic prowess and made sure that Robert did not forget it. Yeah, he was definitely, it was definitely more of an indoor child. His, yeah, like, yeah. His hobbies included uh, coin and stamp collecting. Ooh, he he had a, he was writing to foreign pen pals as well. Um, have you ever had a pen pal? No, because I am cool. <laughs> <laughs> have you? I did. When I, well, when I was younger, I used to write to my cousin in Australia. That doesn't count, though. It's your cousin. Yeah, but I kind of stopped. Yeah. He just had, like because I kept riding to him and he was like, oh yeah, and I was like, I went surfing again for the second time this week and I seen this really cool animal out in the outback and then I was like writing back like, ah oh, cool, I think my mom's making stew again. Sat inside all day and just watched the rain. Yeah, uh, I was like, fuck this guy. This guy, you're right back. <laughs> fuck you, yeah. fuck this really. Hope you get bit by a giant spider. Fuck you and your great life. Hope you get me by a shark. Though he had briefly had a girlfriend in his teens. Brudella realized early on that he was actually gay and he had no interest in dating women. Obviously, times were very different, and so for the entirety of his youth and the majority of his life, though, Brudella kept his sexuality to himself. When he was just 16 years old, at maybe the most crucial point in his adolescence, Robert turned to the church for comfort in the wake of his father's sudden death from a heart attack at just 39, very, very young age of a heart attack. Later, after having found little comfort in the church he'd grown up in, Rodella later claimed that it was this period in his life and his struggle for understanding that would first ignite his interest in the occult, 
and some of the more obscure religious groups. Satanism especially caught his attention. A lot would be made of this interest, and Berdella himself would later refute those. This had nothing to do with his crimes. He just liked Satan and thought it was pretty fucking cool, which I agree. I, I love a good Satan story. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of what was said around Berdella and Satanism was more like media hype. It's always it grabs the attention we say satanic cult. Exactly. Like we will we will get into uh, what was found in his apartment a little later on. But I think he was more just a nerd who was fascinated with collecting strange occult uh, objects rather than actually buying into the lifestyle mm -hmm. and worshipping Satan. Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier that he had his foreign pen pals and they used to send him like photographs and mythical and historical icons and architecture and this is where his like love of uh, artifacts and antiques mm. really came from. With that said though, uh, Bob is still a monster and he may actually be the devil himself. The death of his father wasn't the only formative experience of Bradella's teen years. Something that would make a long lasting impact on him was something that millions of us do every day. That was a trip to the cinema. In this case, Brudella saw a film that would have unforeseen consequences for a lot more than just Robert himself. Based on a novel by John Fowles, the movie in question was William Wyler's The Collector. I haven't seen it, don't know anything about it. But the film's protagonist is Freddy, played by Terence Stamp, a man who is socially withdrawn and finds solace in collecting butterflies. When that is no longer enough for him, he decides to collect human beings instead. Yeah, so the whole movie is essentially a blueprint for how Bordella's own life turned out. Whereas most people, you know, especially teenagers, would be aspiring to be like a big screen action hero, Bordella chose to model himself on a social recluse who'd end up becoming a serial killer. Bordella, he did claim that when he saw this, something inside him changed. But like, it couldn't have been just this single reason. Like, as you mentioned before, there was other trauma in his life. Yeah. His father having a heart attack. He had a heart attack on Christmas Day. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And then he, he died two days later. Uh, but the heart attack actually happened on Christmas Day. Uh, there was also the fact that Bob himself, he was actually sexually assaulted by a male co-worker when he was a line cook at a restaurant. It, well, it's always easier to blame one thing than the myriad of social and economical things that can fuck you up and psychological things that can fuck you up. It's like so much easier to say, oh, no, this is one thing. Yeah, yeah. This is one thing. It's like, why do kids become psychos and killers? Video games. It's not all the other social and psychological things that are a lot harder to fix. Nope, it's video games. <laughs> Definitely video games. Fatality. Bradell's resentment towards women was reinforced when his mother remarried shortly after his father's death. Bradella saw it as a betrayal and added it to the huge pile of issues he already had with women. You know, it's actually kind of shocking that none of his victims were women, giving his hatred towards them. Initially, it seemed that his problem with the female gender came from nothing more than his messed up mind and the divorce. And that was something he used to justify his pre-existing issues to himself. In the summer of 67, two years after he'd seen the movie The Collector, Bob graduated from Cuyahoga Falls High School. It's actually Cuyahoga. Cuyahoga, well, fuck I, you I for looked fucking... it up, I looked it up. <laughs> well, I don't fucking care. <laughs> if you ever correct me again, your face is going through the wall. <laughs> Cuyahoga. I don't care. <laughs> Anyways, he did well throughout his studies, earning several academic awards and promotions. It was shortly after graduation that Bob Berdella took off on the road and moved to Kansas City to attend the Kansas City Art Institute with the aim of ultimately becoming a professor at the college. Once more, Berdella was considered to be a very involved and bright student and was dedicated to his studies. That didn't last too long, and the second year he dropped off completely. It's where he really started showing signs of being a serial killer. Like, mm. usually with serial killers, you see signs from, like, a very early age. But 
I guess he was a bit of a late bloomer. Yeah, <laughs> well, he definitely made up for it. He caught up pretty quickly. Bradella's academic career came to an end in 1969 when he decided it would be a great idea to decapitate a duck and cook it all in the name of art in front of his fellow students and teachers. Obviously, the college authorities didn't quite see it the same way and thought it best they went their separate ways. I feel like Bob seen himself as a misunderstood genius mm. at this point. He also did another art project um, in which he created a small maze where anyone that entered was given a little baby chicken in front of the hold while they go through the maze. Then at the end of the maze, they were met with a, a little short film of a different babe, baby chicken that was just pecking away and enjoying life uh, until someone off screen killed it with a shotgun. And the sheer shock of witnessing such a foul demise led to some participants to have involuntary reactions, which caused injury or sometimes even accidentally killing baby chicken. Oh, they would like jump almost and like squeeze yeah, it out. Just the noise of the shotgun going off. It was like, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, and then you squeeze and yeah, sometimes chickens got hurt, sometimes they, they, they kill the chickens them. Died. Wow, it's fucked up. And Bob, he was just off to the side watching the whole thing. And it really seems that this was like the beginning of his really cruel psychological yeah. games with people. That's really fucked up. So Bob's first experience with the law came a year prior, and it had nothing to do with the violence or the crimes that would make him infamous. See, old Bobby boy absolutely loved the drugs. In fact, he went through pretty much all the recreational drugs you can imagine. And as it so often goes, he ended up selling them in order to support his own experiments with various potions and various powders. Bradella put the change in his aspirations down to the crowd he'd fallen in with during his college time. Though he was often seen to be antisocial and aloof with others, Bob managed to befriend a group who introduced him to drugs, and the rest is history. The fall, it was quick, and it was fast, and after not too long, Bob Rodella was arrested after trying to sell meth to an undercover police officer. He got lucky on this occasion, and was released after posting the $3,000 bond. In the end, he received a five-year suspended sentence. But whatever it was that kept him out of jail that time, Bob had enough of it to get him second arrest less than a month after the first. This time, it was possession of LSD and weed, and unlike the first, he couldn't post bail at time and was in jail for five days. Then his luck came true, and the charges against him and another student were dropped. Back in 1969, and Robert Bradell, he had then moved to an address on Charlotte Street. Same address, which I mentioned at the top, he would eventually make notorious. Things actually started out on a real high note for him, and he even earned himself a bit of a reputation as an all-round swell guy. Just... Real, you know, salt of the earth. He, he participated in organizing a local community crime watch program. So I'm starting to think like he might have thought like crime watch was a different thing. Oh yeah, I love watching crime. Exactly. Murder is yeah, my favorite. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> oh, okay. he tried to prevent crime. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I see. Unknown to his neighbors, Berdella would frequently have male sex workers over, having lived openly as a gay man for a few years after moving into his new home. He had this reputation as a good egg by supporting and apparently nurturing addicts and prostitutes to give up their criminal ways and change their lives. Little did they know about his own indulgences. It was a bold move in the 70s to come out as gay. Especially in like, you know, Midwest and these places. Yeah, I felt like it was still kind of, maybe it was like a bit of a shock. Uh, like, it was used to shock people. Yeah. Like, you know, we love doing that. But uh, yeah, I said like Bob, he frequently, uh, with these people, he frequently bartered rent with these vulnerable young men in exchange for uh, their assistance, like around the house or yeah. like, order services, often in a sexual nature. Yeah. yeah, and then like additionally, he would manipulate these individuals into recruiting other destitute men from the streets and bringing them to Bob's residence. So it was like he had this like sadistic pyramid scheme in yeah, place. he was kind of like a bit of a pimp. 
For most of the duration of the 70s and the early 80s, Bob Berdella has supported himself by working as a short order cook in various restaurants around Kansas. But later, Bob opened a shop appropriately called Bob's Bizarre Bazaar in 1982. Rolls off the tongue. That was from his booth at, a, at the Westport Flea Markets, and there he dealt with antiques and oddities from around the world. Anything connected to the spiritual was his wheelhouse, but he would also deal in whatever fucking make money. If this was today, like, white girls would flock to it, all wearing t-shirts. I am a descendant of the witches you didn't burn. That yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. crystals. <laughs> which, in fairness now, when I say white girls, I mean you and me. Uh, yeah. I would be there, too. I've actually, I've had to stop wearing, like, my witchy t-shirts. Uh, I just thought because I had to, I, a couple of teenagers come up to me and say, oh, I love your t-shirt. I have the same one. Uh, like, that don't happen to me twice, but still, yeah. that was enough. Yeah, when 16-year-old girls are telling a 33-year-old man they had the same taste. It's time Very to stop. Point. Yeah, I know. But it's cool. I love witchy shit. <laughs> me too. Just let me wear it. Yeah, I know. I don't care. Just let me be myself. <laughs> now, so this turned our Bobby into a bit of a hoarder. He would use his own house as a, as a store for his, for his stock overflow. And Bob was known to be just a little light-fingered on occasion in his acquisitions of items for his shop. Just like his academic career and his culinary adventures, his business went well for a time and was successful enough to be uh, Bob Burdell's only source of income. However, later, the search of Bob Burdell's house unearthed a whole heap of horrors. In addition to the handwritten logs and photographs and a pair of human skulls, detectives found a stack of occult literature and even a robe apparently for use in satanic rituals. After searching Burdell's house, investigators turned their attention to the rest of his property. Unsurprisingly, they didn't come up short, finding another human skull and more and more pieces of bone. Police found various devices that had been used to torture Berdella's victims. When this all came out and the police found skulls in his home, people were like, hang on a second, he sold a lot of human skulls. But they, they tracked down the skulls he sold and they tested them all. And fortunately, most of the skulls were actually not real apart from one. Uh, but that was way too old to be part of like any recent murders. So, really? Yeah, so yeah, he hung on to the, the real skulls for himself. Speaking of selling skulls, I was reading the news recently that there was a, there's a store in Salem, Massachusetts, and it's kind of like Bob's Bizarre Bazaar. It sold creepy shit, witchy shit. And like in Salem, there's a load of those kind of stores, and a lot of them are pretty cool, but they sell bones and skulls and stuff like that. And a lot of it's, yeah, it's fake, but it just looks, you know, it's really aesthetic. But this one was selling real ones. And they, I think the lady who ran it, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if I'm wrong, but I believe she just got arrested by like the FBI because it turned out a, a mortuary was selling her this stuff. No way. Bones, skulls, human shit. And she was oh, then shit. Sell, reselling it in, in her shop in Salem. Yeah, yeah. I remember because actually the name of the store, I hadn't been to it because I've been to Salem a couple of times. I hadn't been to it, but I knew the name, like the name rang a bell. And yeah, she's just been arrested. Apparently the FBI were searching her place and like searching her car. And yeah, a nearby mortuary was... Yeah, because you kind of just expect those skulls to be fake. Like, I, yeah. I, I have a skull home, and well, it's, it's, it's a, I use it as a money box. Yeah, oh, I have one here, and it looks real, but it's like obviously concrete. I don't think it's illegal to sell them, but I think it's like, I think it does have to go through, like, you can't just like fucking grave off, essentially, which is what they were doing. But, um, okay, so speaking of Bob, so yeah, let, let's skip forward a few years, and this is kind of the part of the story. So, as you'll notice, by the way, I'm telling the story, I'm not telling it kind of in chronological way. Because almost like halfway through the story, you have to put a disclaimer. I'm like, okay, now we're getting into the dark shit when we're going to go through each of his victims. So just be warned, listeners. It's okay now, but 
It gets so much worse. Yeah, it gets a lot worse. So uh, let's skip ahead a few years when a man was seen escaping from Bob's house nakedly. And then there was a subsequent search of his property. The detectives searching the house weren't even sure what they found was real. You see, Burdell had so much random and odd shite crammed into his house related to his witchy hobbies and Bob's Bazaar. Investigators had no idea what was actual murder evidence and what was just creepy, you know, horror stuff. Unfortunately for Bradella, as I mentioned, he kept detailed records of exactly what he did to each one of his victims. Just in case that didn't paint a vivid enough picture, Bob also took hundreds of uh, graphic Polaroids of his victims in various uh, positions. Going to trial likely would have resulted in a death penalty conviction. So instead, Berdella and the defense quickly stuck a deal to save his life in, ex in exchange for life in prison. In return, Bob gave a detailed and graphic confession of six murders over an almost four-year period. Berdella's crimes started relatively late in life compared to a lot of serial killers, and he wasn't active for too long. All in all, from the first to last murder, it only spanned from July 5th, 1984 to July 9th, 1987. So before we dive in, so I want to just want to give you a heads up that I have a couple of emergency lighthearted facts on standby. Okay. So because there may be moments during these accounts that really kind of push you critically close to just losing your faith in humanity. Okay. Right. So, you get some icebreakers. Yeah. Very so nice. If you feel like you're teetering on the edge of despair and just say the word and I'll hit you up with a delightful little fact to lift okay. your spirits. So for instance, did you know that a single strand of spaghetti is actually called spaghetto? I did not, but I like that. Delightful. Yeah, that is. A spaghetto. Throw them in when you feel appropriate when we been going getting dark for a while. Because it's going to be Yeah. <laughs> so his first victim was named Jerry Howell, aged 19, and it was on, this was on July 5th, 1984. According to Berdella himself, Berdella's first admitted victim, I, like an emphasis on admitted here because we are only, I mean, it's only Bob Berdella's word we have for this entire story in his confession. It was 19-year-old Jerry. Jerry Howell was the son of a fellow booth owner at the flea market, and Burdella was already well acquainted with Paul at the time of the murder of his son. Burdella told authorities that he had promised to take young Jerry to a dancing contest on the 5th of July, 1984. Instead, Burdella gave Jerry spiked drinks in his car and then again at his home, offering him extra drugs including diazepam. When Jerry Howell eventually began slipping in and out of consciousness, Burdella in an effort to keep him that way, injected the teenager with a strong sedative that knocked him out completely. Honestly, it's kind of surprising he didn't actually overdose him and just kill him. But that would have been uh, merciful compared to what would come next for 19-year-old Jerry. In terms of serial killing, like he, Bob really kind of deviated from the norm in the situation. Typically, victims are strangers. Uh, although sometimes the killer will potentially, like they will observe beforehand. But in Bob's case, like he knew, I said, he knew Jerry well. And yeah, he's the son of his fucking neighbor, Paul, or his work neighbor, work colleague, whatever you want to call it. The guy who ran the next all over. Yeah, it would just, He would have seen Paul every day. And then he's yeah. killing his son. Yeah, perfectly. Yeah. yeah. When Jerry came back to consciousness, he'd been tied to the bed in Berdella's bedroom. For more than 24 hours, <laughs> fuck man, Berdella proceeded to carry out his sick fantasies, continuously sedating Jerry with drugs and then relentlessly torturing and, well, raping him and violating him and... Yeah, fuck. Can we have a fact, please, already? <laughs> fun fact time, alright. Uh, fun fact. Uh, a blob of toothpaste that goes on your toothbrush is called a nurdle. A nurdle. That's a fun word. I like that. 
Throughout the non-stop abuse, Jerry repeatedly begged to be let go and asked Berdella why he was doing this to him. Berdella, of course, had no answer for him and just shoved a gag into his mouth, which is likely what caused Jerry's death. Berdella insisted Jerry died by accident and it wasn't his intention to kill him, even insisting that he attempted to re revive Jerry with CPR. Though how exactly he expected to keep Jerry prisoner and not be found out just kind of contradicts that. It's likely what he actually meant was that he had an intent to kill him just yet. So like Jerry and Bob, they, they were sleeping together before all this had started. Uh, and Jerry, he refused to have sex with Bob that night. And this rejection left like Bob frustrated. So this is from his account again. So yeah. that's why he drove Jerry to get his way. And then I guess his sadistic needs kind of took over. Another fucked up thing is like, uh, which we'll see with all of his other killings, is that like he took meticulous notes of every single thing that he did to Jerry. And I feel this really just shows that how much he was enjoying the power he had over Jerry at the time. And he wanted to make sure that he was capturing every detail. Uh, so he could relive it again and again. <coughs> mm. He noted details of, such as a quantity of drugs he gave at what time. But he also noted every time he sodomized Jerry and what position he used. So he noted FF, which was front fuck, BF for butt fuck, and then CF. Do you know what CF is? Do I want to know what CF is? Not really. It's a carrot fuck. What? Carrot fuck. Carrot. Oh, with a carrot. Okay. Wow. Oh, sorry. I actually didn't even yeah, register because so. it was that so fucked up. I must let that uh, horrifying little tidbit. Just you leave leave a fun, if you got another one of fun facts, you're gonna have, you're gonna run out of them. I think with this story. Uh, the national animal of Scotland is a unicorn. Really? Yeah. yeah that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I would tell us Loch Ness monster because at least that's the one they actually have. It didn't take long for Berdella to abandon any ideas of regret or empathy, and instead, after killing Jerry, he dragged his body down to the basement. Berdella hanged Jerry's corpse from a beam in the ceiling, suspended over a large cooking pot. He then made cuts to Jerry's joints and to his neck, before leaving him there overnight until all the blood drained from his body. The next morning, Berdella used a chainsaw to dissect Jerry's exsanguinated remains and further cut them down with a boning knife. Once he'd finished with the butchery, Berdella packed each of the pieces in trash bags and newspaper. The wrapped sections were then placed into larger bags and then put out on the curb to be collected and taken away like any other normal garbage. Uh, so yeah, it was just the, the easy way possible to get rid of the body. Garbage men will do it. I can't decide if like disposing of the body in this way was like ballsy and arrogant or stupid and lucky. Berdella used Jerry Howell's struggles and desperation for his own twisted gratification. Jerry's father, Paul, always believed that Berdella was responsible for his young son's disappearance and even worked with the police for years to try and pin something on Bob. Without a body, though, the police had little to go on, and despite putting Bob under surveillance at the time, they couldn't get anything solid to use against him. Berdella, he did say that he was ashamed of what he had done, and he'd hid away his notes and Polaroids that he took from that night for, for months, he said. And then slowly but surely he started yeah. taking them out and taking a look every now and again until eventually he was full on, uh, let's say, tickling the pickle, hand gland combat. But uh, yeah, he was enjoying them anyway. He, he was enjoy yeah, but like, yeah. it's such bullshit because like he initially said that he was ashamed, but if this is the case, he just would have gone rid of them. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. But he, he, he was knowing full well that I'm going to use these. Yeah, money, money, money. So with the police sniffing around and Berdella's appetite apparently sated by his first foray into murder. That was enough at least to keep him happy and quiet for the rest of 1984 and a large chunk of 1985. It wouldn't be until April of 85 that Berdella's dark passenger would rear its ugly head 
once again. In early April of 85, Burdella was approached by 20-year-old Robert Sheldon. Robert had stayed with Burdella as a lodger previously and once again asked if he could stay with him. Sheldon had argued with his girlfriend and she'd thrown him out in his arse. In his confession, Burdella seemed overly eager to make it known he did not find Sheldon attractive and that hadn't been the motivation behind the assault. Burdella agreed to take Sheldon back in as a tenant and put him up in his home. It's, man, it's amazing how many people were just, you know, put their trust into Burdella only for him to, be, you know, rear his head as, an, as a horrible monster. Just as with Jerry, though, Burdella was quick to take advantage of Sheldon. On April 12th, Burdella claimed he'd come home from work to find Sheldon drunk in his house, annoyed by his new housemate and finding him to be an all-round inconvenience. Whereas most people would say, uh, would you fucking leave? <laughs> Burdella instead, he decided to drug and torture Sheldon, just as he had done with Jerry Howell. Apparently, due to Sheldon's history with drink, he'd actually built up quite a high tolerance. So the drugs that Bradella gave him only like made him a little bit wobbly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be enough. Yeah, as would <laughs> as would end up being a bit of a pattern where Bob's killings each one would be another step up. This time, after he'd sedated Sheldon with the same drugs that he'd used on Howell, in an effort to hinder any attempt at escape, Bradella injected drain cleaner into Sheldon's eyes. Which is honestly probably the most fucked up thing uh, I've ever heard. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. With Sheldon blinded and bound by piano wire, Bradella forced Builder's cock into his ears and needles under his fingernails. Jesus Christ. Like, okay, that's a fun fact time. Fun fact, uh, he's blinded, he's deaf, and he's needles under his fingernails. Run out of fun facts. Uh, Vikings used to give kittens as wedding presents. Really? Yeah. Vikings love cats. Fun fact. You know, Freya is a Viking Nordic god and cats are like her familiar. Oh. Yeah. Bradella later admitted that he used Sheldon to take out his frustrations and anger that had built up towards people and society in general. This time, the torture lasted four days in total. Once again, Bradella would insist he didn't want to kill Robert, but his hand had been forced. Although he had already injected drain cleaner into his eyes, so um, I'm not too sure. Not too sure about that. On April 15th, Bradella came home to find a workman on his roof carrying out planned maintenance work. In a panic that Sheldon would be discovered, Bradella decided he'd better do away with the evidence. So later that day, he placed a bag over Sheldon's head and tightened a rope around his neck, which suffocated him, killing him. Just as he had with Jerry Howell, he dissected the young man's body, this time foregoing the overnight draining of the blood, and changing the venue from the basement to the third floor bathroom. He, he used the chainsaw again to remove yeah. uh, Sheldon's head, which he put in the freezer. Yeah. And then after a few days, he took it out and buried it in the backyard. Uh, he did this because he wanted a skull. And, but once again... Good money there. He's going to sell it in his bazaar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Make a few bob out of But uh, yeah, the rest of the body that was taken again by the garbage man. By the garbage man. On yeah. Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Also, like, it's fucked up that he, he was still going to work like this whole time, because mm-hmm. the the, yeah. the flea market business doesn't stop. No, you gotta he, he, tick 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 tick. You hear that? That's gotta stay in that grind, bro. Yeah, that's it. The next murder would be two months later, and whether it was because an easy opportunity presented itself or he just would have grabbed another victim, regardless, it's impossible to know. What Berdella told investigators was that he'd found a young man named Mark Wallace hiding in his garden shed. Twenty-year-old Wallace was a runaway unlike their prior two, was already known to Bob, 
he'd done some yard work for some quick and easy cash. And so, like Jerry Howell and Robert Sheldon, he trusted Bob. Even though, like, I've read this already uh, and I've gone through it, I still feel like, like I'm watching a movie. You know, like, no, don't go in there. Yeah, don't go in there. Don't go in there. Yeah. Verdella invited him inside and quickly noticed that Wallace was showing several obvious signs of anxiety and depression. And so Verdella's thinking, oh, hey, you know, I'll exploit that. You look like you need to chill out. You look like you need, I can give you something to calm you down. Unwind. According to Bardella, Wallace was more than happy to let himself be injected with chlorprosamine, which is better known as, well, essentially it's a strong antipsychotic medication with a strong effect, causing drowsiness and even a loss of consciousness. Obviously not a good state for anybody to be in around Bob Bardella, and obviously Bardella jumped on this to make Wallace his new plaything. Third time around, torture was far less drawn out, but Bardella was pretty much just as cruel and creative. Just a day after being taken prisoner, Wallace died, likely due to the large amount of drugs in his system combined with the gag used to keep him quiet, which deprived him of his ability to breathe. Before that moment came, Wallace had been subjected to Bardella's experiments. Bardella inserted needles into Wallace's muscles just to find out what the result would be. Maybe even worse, he attached clips to his nipples and delivered electric shocks through a transformer plugged into the mains which would have been, as you can imagine, extremely painful, and as again, Bardella keeping detailed records, documenting the entire thing with his camera, all the while doing all the other sick shit that you can imagine Bob was doing to him, which I don't need to go over again. Honestly, it's kind of amazing he didn't have a video camera, because he... Thank God. Thank God, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bardella's records noted that Wallace succumbed to asphyxiation at around 7pm on the 23rd of June, the day after he had willingly walked into Bardella's house. The next victim would be in September of 1985. And whatever it was about 1985 that made it just such a dangerous time to be in contact with Bardella, well, I don't know what it was, but it carried on. On this occasion, there was no spur-of-the-moment decision. This time, Bob Bardella knew exactly what he was planning on doing when he met a 20-year-old acquaintance named James Ferris for a drink at a bar. Earlier on that day, James had called Bardella and asked if he could crash at his house for a short time. Bardella claimed later that when he'd accepted the request from James Ferris, this was the first time he did so with the specific intention of imprisoning and torturing the young man. Why would he lie about that? Probably is true. It doesn't really matter anyway, but he's still the same piece of shit who would do the same disgusting things. Bardella drugged James with food he gave him shortly after arriving at his house and then tied him to the bed while he was still unconscious. When he woke, James was subjected to the same routine the previous victims had been. It started with shocks to his shoulders, to his genitals, shocks that lasted up to five minutes continuously at a time. That's such a long time. To be electrocuted. From the mains. Yeah. Jesus, can you imagine how fucking painful that would be? Jesus. Then it was back to Bob's amateur acupuncture, using hypodermic needles and stabbing them into his neck, into his genitals, doing all sorts of shit. And over the next few hours, he became delirious and struggled to stay conscious. Obviously, that didn't matter to Bob. He still carried on, eventually scribbling in his notes that James couldn't sit up for more than a few seconds at a time and was struggling to breathe. The last entry in Bardello's torture notes was simply 86, which is a term chefs use, which means done. It's done. Sure, right. Ended. 86. It. <sighs> Would you like another fact? Yeah, I could, I could use a good one, to be honest with you right now. We use them to break the ice. Um, all Major League Baseball umpires have to wear black underwear in case their pants split. 
I did not know that. There you go. For whatever reason, the uh, James Ferris torture seemed to calm Burdell's urges, at least for a short time, because for the rest of 1985, he didn't get another victim. Maybe opportunity didn't come up, or he just didn't, you know, find anybody, was able to sate himself with all the pictures and documentation he had. But his next victim wouldn't be until June of 1986. Is there something about the summertime that brought out the demon of Big Bubba Boy? <laughs> it was in the middle of June 1986 that Bob Berdella happened to bump into 23-year-old Todd Stoops. Stoops and his wife were both drug addicts who had stayed with Berdella in the past. Berdella had even paid Todd for sexual favors with his wife's knowledge, usually for drug money. And that's how Berdella lured Stoops in, offering to, you know, offering to get him something to eat and then the equivalent of $35 in exchange for some sex. So Todd needed a fix, he accepted the offer and tagged along with Bardella back to the house at 4315 Charlotte Street. I think this is the worst one yet. Yeah, this yeah, is awful. Stoops was the first victim that Bardella admitted he was really attracted to, which was a bad thing, and that's why he wanted to keep him. That's also likely why he started out slower with the torture, maybe fearing that going too extreme too quickly would kill him before he'd had all his fun. Once more, Bordella repeated the routine of needles and electric shocks building up slowly, but eventually getting more and more brutal in time. And Stoops was captive for a lot longer than the others, for over two weeks in total, during which he, he was stabbed with needles, he was shocked, he was starved. And on one occasion, Bordella got so annoyed by Stoops screaming for help that he injected drain cleaner into his throat. Rather than injecting drain cleaner into Todd's eyes like he had done previously, Fredella decided to mix it up and he applied electric shocks directly to Todd's eyeballs, blinding him. Stoops begged at least for something to eat, but Fredella refused and continued the abuse, ramping things up. On the 27th of June, Fredella, uh, fuck. This is one of those things where it's in the script and I, I don't even know if I can say the words. Um... He, uh, fuck, how do you, uh, he, he put his fist in his forearm into, uh, the young guy, and I'm sure you can imagine how, um, yep, he did this so violently, he ruptured Todd Stoops' internal organs, uh, for want of a better word. Probably knowing the end was near for Todd, uh, Burdell finally rented and tried to give Todd some soup and later some ice cream, but for obvious fucking reasons, uh, ruptured bowels. He couldn't eat, and according to Bardella's handwritten notes, Stoops finally passed away on the 1st of July, 1986. And the last day or so before he died, Bardella noted that Todd couldn't even breathe while in the seated position. During the investigation into his crimes, a forensic pathologist de determined that Stoops had most likely died of septic shock caused by ruptured bowels. Ooh, yeah, fact, please. Any of them is good. There are not enough lighthearted facts. Here's a fact. Life has no meaning and there is no God. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, that's, that tracks. That tracks with what I've been going through so far. Also, like, something that really reveals just his wicked and heartless nature, like, if you needed any more proof, Yeah. Um, is that even after Bordella ruptured Todd's internal organs, he didn't stop there. 
He continued to subject him to prolonged acts of sodomy days after. Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, man. I'm, so I'm, so just so people are know, I'm drinking a Bud Light while we record this podcast, and I really wish it was something a lot fucking stronger. <laughs> I, know, yeah, I think yeah. I'll have a whiskey after this episode. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. I need a whiskey and a hug. Yeah. The next victim was Larry Wayne Pearson, aged 20 years old, and this was on July 9th, 1987. So after the most uh, gruesome one, uh, Bradell went to ground and he hibernated for almost a year. But then, springtime came a call. And Bradella, he managed to strike. I have to try and keep a light somehow. Uh, you know, we can't go to the very depths of despair. I know, I'll sing. I'll sing, yes, exactly. Bradella managed to strike up a friendship with a 20-year-old man named Larry Pearson. The two bonded over their shared interest in the occult, in particular witchcraft of all varieties. Goddamn, you know, if we met Barbara Della, we'd probably be friends with him because we'd find all this fascinating. I was like, like poor, witchcraft, cool. Poor Larry, he's just trying to put himself out there. Like, it's a risky game trying to meet yeah. people who are also interested in the like things of the occult. Because yeah. like people like me and you who are just like we're interested. We yeah. like it. Well, I like the I'll aesthetic. Talk, I think it's cool. It. Yeah, but then there's people that are like really interested yeah super interested and then yeah. before you know you're being invited to rituals yeah, yeah. i kind of want to get invited to a ritual someday <laughs> so anyway larry then began staying with Bardella and did odd jobs around the house in exchange for some lodgings Bardella claimed he had no intention of taking larry prisoner but his patience began to wear thin as larry showed little to no interest in finding a job and paying his way with actual cash to add extra tension Larry had gone and gotten himself arrested and Bradella had to bail him out, a debt which Larry showed little desire in settling. The final straw came a few days later. The two men watched a movie and ate lunch. Creep show too, for those who care about that sort of thing. I actually watched the movie. You watched that movie? I, I, after I read this, I watched it. It was good? It's a... Uh, I, I liked it. it. It was really good. It was kind of... It was like... Uh, it was it was good in a crappy way. Okay. Oh, it, okay. Was, it was really nostalgic. It yeah. was like... Um, it was the way that it was shot and written kind of reminded me of like Goosebumps or ah, Are You nice. Afraid? I love Are that. Afraid? Yeah, it's really good. It was. It's actually. It's three movies that are made up of three different tales. Oh, I like that. I yeah. like Wonder. Yeah, it's like an anthology kind of movie. Yeah, yeah, that's it's, cool. It's good. I really like it. We should. We should watch it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sounds add good. it to the list. So uh, after watching Creepshow Two, which we will add to our list, uh, five stars from Keith. <laughs> uh, after that, they, according to Bradella, at least, um, they went for a drive, and then, um, according to Bradella again. Larry started uh, bragging about how he made money by robbing gay men after posing as a prostitute. Bardella, as you can imagine, took that personally and then started planning. He's like, only I can rob gay men. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, now he's decides to get some morality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now he sees himself as doing a good thing by yeah, what yeah. he's going to do. That same evening, Bardella plied Pearson with alcohol and waited until he was close to passing out when he injected Pearson with Thorazine, his old favorite. This time, he changed it up a bit and dragged Pearson down to the basement, usually the last stop in the Bardella house. In the basement, he tied Pearson hands above his head and then tied that to a rope around a support column in the basement. For Pearson, the drain cleaner to the throat came first, likely in an effort to, to keep him quiet. Bardella actually said that Larry Pearson was by far the most compliant of all his victims, pretty much going along with everything Bardella wanted. Wow, guys injecting drain cleaner into your throat. I'd probably do the same. Which is a you know, pretty sensible thing. You're probably just trying to delay the inevitable. As usual, Bordella used a combination of electric shocks and needles to get Pearson to submit to him. On one occasion, Bordella used a metal pole to break several bones in Larry's hands. After a few days, 
Perdella felt that Pearson was behaving himself and had been going along with what Perdella asked of him, and so he began giving him little rewards, like moving him uh, to the second floor and tying him to the bed rather than to a brick column in the basement. No doubt, that would have been a massive relief after five days in the basement, but uh, do you want to even be in five feet of a bed with Bob Berdella? But he, would, he was so terrified he would do anything he asked, saying silence, obeying. In the end, he endured a whole six weeks of torture. I kind of like wonder if he was just like reluctantly cooperating with oh, Bob, course. thinking that like he'll get out, he'll yeah, escape, like, yeah, his time exactly, yeah. Or it, it was either if I just give him what he wants, he'll let me go, yeah. Or it was I'm biding my time, yeah, and I'm waiting for an escape. I, either way, like enduring like six weeks of this shit, yeah, like mind boggling. That's a long ass yeah. time. Finally, in August of 1987, after having been subjected to some of the worst tortures imaginable, Larry had finally had enough and he decided if he couldn't escape he would make sure to ruin Bob Bordella's day. Pearson bit down hard on Bordella's penis causing serious bleeding and damage. Fuck yeah. So much so Bordella had to drive himself to hospital for treatment but before he did so he took out his anger on Larry. He bludgeoned Larry unconscious with a tree branch before tying a bag over his head and suffocating him to death. Pearson joined the other victims on the curb and then finally the garbage dump. Well, most of them. Anyway, Brudella decided to keep some of Pearson. He kept his severed head for a little while. When he bit his dick, he nearly took that thing clean off. Nice. There was, it was literally hanging on by like a piece of skin that when, when he got to the hospital. Like, I'd love to know what he explained yeah. when he got there. It's like, I don't know, I was innocently just vacuuming. Yeah, and then fell over and then... Yeah, yeah, yeah I just, my cot fell off. Yeah, then the nozzle got stuck on <laughs> it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I said, don't disturb you, I'm cleaning my room! And that brings us back to March 29th, 1988, and to 22-year-old Christopher Bryson climbing out of a second-story window, naked, and becoming the first person to be very happy to see a meter reader in the history of humanity. Bryson later quoted Berdella as saying, You did not choose to be here, but you are. For you to survive being here, and for you to, you know, make it, it could either be rough or it could be easy. If I grow to like you and to trust you, then I could do special things for you, such as buy you cigarettes, pick up a movie on the way home from work, and so forth. Don't try to fight me, or you'll get more of what you had earlier. You see... What you got is nothing compared to what you can have. Thank God he was caught. Yeah. This is like really when he was starting getting, I think, more like psych- psychological torture. Uh, like by the time he got to Chris Bordella, he was exposing Chris to his collection of photographs showcasing other men who had fortunately met their demise and like just showing their torment. Yeah. But, uh, like, yeah. This is, hey, what do you think? This is a preview. So anyway, after keeping uh, Christopher for a while, Christopher somehow managed to escape. He managed to escape out the window and... The police were alerted. Following his arrest, Berdella was arraigned on charges of sodomy and assault on April 4th, with bail initially set at half a million dollars, but later revoked when police determined that one of the men in the many photographs appeared to be dead, and so they were able to up the charges to murder and withdraw bond completely. Thanks to the plea deal with prosecutors, Berdella's sentence would end up being life in prison. The only murder charge was that of Robert Sheldon. Fortunately, there were enough lesser charges that bumped the time up to make sure Berdella would never get out. And on October 8th, 1992, only four years and two months into his sentence, 
Brudella would suffer an eerily similar fate to his father, dying of a heart attack at age 43, just four years older than his father had been when he'd succumbed to the affliction. The name, the Kansas City Butcher, was given to Bardella on account of his extreme level of savagery towards his victims, both pre- and post-mortem. For obvious reasons, Bardella's former Hyde Park neighbours petitioned authorities to destroy the house where the crimes had taken place. In the end, their prayers were answered by an unlikely source when a local millionaire and infamous bank robber named Del Dunmire bought Bardella's house and possessions at an auction. Not long after Dunmeyer had the house bulldozed and donated the land to the community, Dunmire opened an oddity display in Harrisonville, Missouri, to show the remainder of Bordello's belongings. And so ends the case of Big Bobby B. Woo! Yep, that's kind of, I kind of agree. I actually have no, like, funny kind of anecdote or something to end this one on. That's this fucking grim-ass I hope he, uh, story. I hope he died screaming. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hope he did. Uh, yeah. I watched uh, I watched an interview he did, and he had, like, the audacity uh, to blame the biased media mm-hmm. for treating him poorly. Fucking liberal media is baiting me as the bag. It's like, poorly. Uh, he, like, he had the nerve to say, the media treated me just like I treated my victims, dehumanizing me. Yeah, like, talk about, like, twisted logic. And there was yeah. also, there was an instance as well in uh, a radio station. It was called The Fox in Kansas. And they were running. It was really, it was a tasteless promotion. Uh, they were giving out prizes to li- to listeners who showed up wearing a dog collar and a leash. It was completely unacceptable behavior on the station's behalf. Yeah, but he made it all about himself. Oh right, and yeah, he yeah. Claimed yeah. that he was deeply upset about this. <laughs> I'm offended. Yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah. You were the one done it. This but, is this is a microaggression. <laughs> <laughs> but like like here's the kicker. Right, he had the audacity to shift blame onto the police. For letting him get away with his crimes for so long. It's really the police's fault, really. Yeah. If they caught him earlier, he wouldn't have done it. So um, he's kind of the victim, I actually hear at the end of the day. Police are really the bad guys. Literally, pretty much. <laughs> I love that. Like, I love that argument. He said the victim's, families, uh, the victim's family won't be happy knowing the police basically gave up on the investigation and their cases because they went missing in an area they didn't care about. He even had the gall to say that he killed six people. And but the police had killed way more because of their incompetence. Mm. According to him, the police had if they had just done their job properly and followed up on leads, they might have like scared them off and prevented further yeah, harm. Absolutely. But he did say he actually said this like they would never have caught me. He said this from jail. Yeah. Yeah. Says man who has been caught. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, here, listen, uh, folks. Thank you so much for listening to this old episode of the That Chapter podcast. Uh, joining again by Keith. I think we should just uh, change the, the title of it. Should be That Chapter and Keith podcast. I might just change the name eventually at some point. Let's get a ring to it. <laughs> That's your Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, listen. Uh, so, wow. It's kind of all I have to say to that whole episode because that's pretty messed up episode of Bob Bradella. And now, you know, you know, we had to look this up. So, you know, if we have this knowledge, you have to too. We have to share the misery together of being aware of this fucking bitch. I've had to look so for a whole, like, it was like a week and a half of researching this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we should definitely have a glass of whiskey after this. Yeah. You can do a shot. Uh, so yeah, uh, folks, if you're you know in a place where you can have an alcoholic beverage, if you've cared by taking that stuff, go for it right now after listening to this. And yeah, we're here listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening, and please take care of each other and yourselves, because I love you. I think it's important to tell you I love you at this episode for sure. This is a grim one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, you can tell me love them too if you want. I love you too. Great. All right, thanks, Mike. <laughs>